Hello, I'm Greg. Let's have an inappropriate conversation about epistles from gay Christians. This isn't just an opportunistic podcast. I think probably six to eight months ago, as I was looking forward to this particular year and a potential schedule for Inappropriate Conversations shows, I'd already penciled in the very end of June, the very end of what tends to be Pride Month every year throughout the uh, North American continent anyway, maybe the world, and said this is the point in time to finally talk through the question of not just equality, which I've done a handful of times previously on inappropriate conversations, but to address the issue as it pertains to gay Christians in particular. Now, there's a couple of reasons for that, and again, none of them necessarily having to do with any U.S. Supreme Court rulings in the last few days. It's more because I feel like that's where the tide is about to turn, that we've seen an evolution And I guess maybe the way I would describe it is, if you were to go to the uh, Facebook page for Inappropriate Conversations, the one listed as a cause, I think it was probably on Friday, around the time that I would first heard the news from the U.S. Supreme Court, I felt like I needed to put a couple of statements out there. One was a blog post that basically said, hey, four or so years ago, what was my point of view about what direction I thought these issues should go? And let me address some of the differences between the direction I thought we should go in and the direction that ultimately we did go in, and maybe use that as a point to begin having some conversations with people where I could continue to be this middle person, this radical moderate, uh, capable of speaking to both sides of the issue. I will confess that it's very difficult to speak to people who are on the radical right about this matter. Uh, They are not in a mode of having conversations and discussions, and seemingly, frankly, over the last decade or so, uh, have been less and less capable of having conversations and discussions. It's We've really turned into a soundbite culture, perhaps since the Clinton administration. I don't blame Bill Clinton for this. I actually blame the backlash, but it goes back that far. So if you were to look at that page, I made a post on Friday of all of the different times that I could think of, and there's probably been a couple more maybe, where I've dealt head-on with questions of gay rights or equality, things of that nature. It goes all the way back to the very first year of Inappropriate Conversations, and then there's been, again, another handful after that. This, I think, depending on how I count it, might be the seventh time. Now, seven times in five-plus years spread across something like 190 shows, if you count the Walk the Earth episodes, in there as well, really isn't all that much. Uh, I think I probably could be accused of having spoken relatively little about the issue, and yet I wouldn't be surprised if there are people within my circle of friends or circle of family who would perceive that I, quote-unquote, never shut up about it. When we get to the different drummer here in a minute, I'm going to deal with somebody else who's had that burden to bear and has been bearing it a lot longer than anybody like me could pretend to have carried it. But the other thing you'll see if you go to the Facebook page for Inappropriate Conversations is, in fact, if you go to that one and Walk the Earth as well, you'll see a pattern. There's only a couple of 
Facebook sites that I post from across all three parts of my Facebook experience. I've got a personal page that I don't publicize here. That's me. That's for family and people that actually that I actually know. And then I've got inappropriate conversations. I also have Walk the Earth. In addition to Christians tired of being misrepresented, which I will share freely across all three of those sort of pages, the other one that I think I share the most across all three pages is called Unvirtuous Abbey. It is a slightly irreverent and nevertheless sincere Christian Facebook page that tends to address the issues that I think probably I started this podcast to attack. And it's really this overarching notion of this mentality that there are things we're not allowed to talk about. Can't talk about them in church. Can't talk about them at the dinner table. Certainly can't talk about them with family, which is ironic because it means you're unable to talk about something that is perhaps as big and as important as anything else with the people who within your spheres of relationships ought to be the most important people. So we sort of have this notion that's been handed down to us from a false sense of gentility decades ago that kind of says that the more important something is, the less likely you are allowed to speak about it with the most important people. And I think a lot of times we're going to find that young people in particular end up having conversations about things related to sexuality or religion with strangers because those topics are not welcome inside the church. Unvirtuous Abby had a post on Sunday, today that I am recording, of this week, and it says this, For the terrified queer teenagers who just had to sit through a rant declaring them worthless to their church, we pray. This tends to be the, the standard post from Unvirtuous Abby. It uh, calls out a, an issue, a sincere issue, but uh, deals with it in a somewhat off-kilter way and ends with, we pray. I said, in response to it, for the fact that I fear the risk of posting this kind of Unvirtuous Abby comment anywhere near my own personal pages, anywhere near the place where I share information with family, because of what kind of backlash I might get, what kind of consequences there might be. Well, that tells you all you need to know about what might be the precarious position of a semi-ally or a somewhat allied individual. But I think it's a big deal because I've come to believe, and if it's not people I know personally, at the very least it's hypothetically true, that there are people who need our prayers more than anyone else because they are standing well and truly in the balance. These may be young adults, but it may also be teenagers at the point of puberty or even prepubescent who... When an issue of national concern, like the Supreme Court ruling over marriage, comes up and flares up, these people who have not necessarily found the words yet, and may never, to share fully and completely their thoughts and feelings with their family members, are hearing instead people in positions of authority, people that they should be viewing as the kind of people they can trust for protection, parents, teachers, pastors, priests, instead unwittingly attacking them because those folks, those adults are saying hateful things about other people, about strangers, without realizing that the character traits they're attacking in those others might actually be character traits that are present in their own kids. And they haven't come to terms with the dignity of those traits, uh, viewing everything in, in big black and white letters and, and, and the damage that that can do. So I did put up a post late Saturday night, early Sunday morning, basically saying that what if, what if you had a parent or a teacher 
may have no idea that denouncing somebody else, somebody who's a stranger again, is actually denouncing their own child or their own student or their own parishioner. Somebody that Jesus has commanded them to protect. It would be better for a large millstone to be wrapped around the neck of that individual for them to be thrown into the deepest part of the ocean than for them to harm one of these children that they have been placed on this planet to protect. As I shared probably the very beginning of inappropriate conversations, certainly the first summer of the first year, my worldview is that as parents, children have been entrusted to us. God has placed them into our hands and we are to protect them all the while moving them toward independence. But what independence truly means is away from a dependence upon parents and over to a truly mature dependence upon God. That there's a form of independence that is, you know, reckless, unfettered, and uh, going to get tossed and torn by the world. And then there's a different kind of independence that has this relationship with God. But you, you break down that relationship with your child. If they believe you hate them because they've seen your hatred expressed toward others and then have come to believe that they are in some way sort of like those others. But there's also a damage that gets done there when they believe that God hates them too. And that's what I want to get to today. Because I'm fearing that the next backlash to come in this give and take between the political right and the political left over questions of equality based on gender and sexuality, I think the next step to come is probably the American right wing denying that there is or could be such a thing as a gay Christian. How do you combat that? I'm unwilling to accept any easy answers here. I think this is harder than any platitude might be able to offer. Because you've got to remember that if this young person can't have a discussion about sexuality and religion inside the home for fear of what the parental authority figure's attitude might be, what do you think they're going to encounter in the world? There will be some people who are ostensibly sympathetic to their point of view, but have an agenda. That agenda can come in a couple of different forms. One can be pure up, straight up sexual exploitation. But the other can be that rather than finding a voice that says, listen, you've had up until this point in your life a relationship with God. You've been told that Jesus loves you. You believe that Jesus loves you. And now you've got to deal with this other thing of what happens if Jesus loves you, but the rest of the Christian world that you've seen hates this part of you. How do you deal with that? And there's going to be another part of the world that is going to be really quick to step up and say, there is no such thing as God. There is no such thing as Jesus. Your parents have lied to you about sexuality because you know you're different than what they said is real or does exist. And they probably lied to you about religion too. So out in the streets is a dangerous place. As for my entire lifetime, including all the way back to when I was a kid, parents have taught. But What about the parents who intentionally kick a kid out of their home? Either in a a form of tough love that's being executed against a wayward kid, or because of what I would call the holiness movement. So there's a couple things I want to do before I introduce the different drummer and get into the heart of today's program, which is sharing bits and pieces of something like 17 letters from gay Christians. Because the word epistles doesn't mean really anything more than letters. It's just a biblical term for it. And because these are Christians who are speaking to other Christians, I feel like epistles is not an inappropriate term. It's certainly an unvirtuous abbey type of an approach. Uh, If you kind of 
take the drift of that website and their sort of reverent, irreverent blend. But before I get there, I want to talk a little bit about the damaging aspect of certain forms of the holiness movement. But first, I want to talk about the evolution of the opposition to gay rights in just a very short span of time, because I think that there's value in looking at it from that perspective. And we'll start there. I think I want to do this through the rubric of inappropriate conversations. It's the easiest thing for me, but it also makes sense, because I believe that the changes I want to discuss have happened over just a five or six year span. And you can see that by my responses to the trends that were there. So if you go back to maybe 2010 and Inappropriate Conversations 37, where I was talking about just kind of dealing with the questions around homosexual rights and some of the controversies that were there. The controversy I was dealing with head-on at that point in time was the still prevalent notion on the political right, the religious right, that this was all a choice, that there was no such thing as gay. And I was trying to deal with that head-on. I also dealt with it about a year later on an episode of Do Ask, Do Tell called Religion. I believe it was the fifth episode of that you know, new show at the time. And I was part of a panel discussion with one of the hosts of the show and another guest, kind of talking through religion and homosexuality and sort of the evolution there. And really the core focus at the time that I was responding to was a prevailing idea that this is just a choice, that no one is actually born that way. And again, that's only four or five, six years ago at the most that this was still the prevailing view. It didn't take the people who had that political worldview losing a couple of elections and losing ground on a state-by-state basis before they began to shift gears and focus elsewhere. And the next time I dealt with the uh, issue head-on, I believe, was probably inappropriate conversations, uh, back-to-back episodes, 106 and 107. The first one called The Violence of Denial, and the second one called Eulogy for Homophobia. This would have been around a December, January kind of a time frame, if I'm not mistaken. Uh, call it 2012, give or take. And the thing I was trying to deal with head on there was a new approach that was basically being introduced by the religious right to say that now it was no longer a problem because homosexuality was just a choice. It was beginning to introduce this idea that there was no such thing as any difference in gender and that anything that was beyond the gender order, picking on the trans side of the LGBT group of folks and suggesting that that was all just somehow volitional choice rebellion against God and marshalling a lot of resources to talk about the behavior side of things that would grow even more strongly with uh, another episode in 136 converse versus convert where I had to deal with uh, some of the controversy spilling out over the duck dynasty thing where you're beginning to hear a lot of Christians actually openly suggest that there was a place within Christianity for gay people, as long as they vowed to live what I would describe as an involuntarily celibate lifestyle. And we may actually still be there. So in Inappropriate Conversations 150, a year ago, give or take, I began to deal with the question of the scripture. Because the first accusation I always get when I answer very narrow, isolated scriptures, even isolated parts of scriptures that are tend, tend to be called the clobber verses by people on the political left is that I get told that when I answer those verses with, you know, three, four, five, six times as much material from the Bible that I'm selectively reading. It's an irony that I'm aware of. You can't throw one single verse of Leviticus at somebody and complain when they give you back, you know, a half a chapter or so 
from the Sermon on the Mount that the person who gave you the half a chapter of the Sermon on the Mount was selectively reading scripture. But I answered that with a three and a half hour episode called Opening the Scriptures and basically said, no, I'm not, I'm not going to be accused of isolating scriptural passages or reading out of context. That's not going to happen. I'm going to go into the detail. And I had no choice because we've gone from there's no such thing as gay. It doesn't exist. If it does exist, it's volitional choice. There's nothing um, inherent to it. If there's something inherent to it, well, that can't possibly be natural. Uh, if it's natural, it has nothing to do with gender because we know that all that gender stuff is just a choice. And all the way to the point of saying, well, okay, what if I? What if the religious right is granting people who are LGBTQ everything, but saying, and as a result of me granting you everything now, you have no choice but to live a celibate lifestyle or be stoned to death? Well, actually, only some of them are threatening people directly with stoning to death. Don't get me wrong. There's a heck of a lot of people who are opposed to gay rights who are engaging in direct physical violence. But there are others who are dealing with this quiet violence, this violence of denial. Because one of the challenges is if you were on the religious right and you really did believe all the things you're saying about the validity of the texts in Leviticus, you're kind of failing God by not seeking to pass death penalty laws. So if you're not going to do... I give Scott Lively, the monster who is on trial for war crimes, for the uh, influence he's had over governments in places like Uganda, trying to put people to death for no, for no more crime than being gay, trying to put people in hard, long prison terms for nothing more than being aware that a neighbor is gay and not ratting them out. This guy is, is in many ways, being a monster, and, and it's appropriate that he is facing these kinds of criminal charges. But I'll tell you what, at least he's not being a hypocrite. He seems to believe the things he says. He's not willing to say that he's married to God's wrath falling upon us if we ignore these chapters in Leviticus, these verses, frankly, in Leviticus, and yet only dealing with them tangentially. If the verse says that this kind of person should be stoned to death and you're not willing to impose a death penalty in the United States over it, then aren't you just being a little bit dishonest? Aren't you betraying God? Or would it be more apt to say that a lot of the controversy over Chick-fil-A a few years ago was that Chick-fil-A was funding organizations that were working toward that. It just it might take the groups on the far right years, if not decades, to finally get America to come around to the people that we should be putting in concentration camps and gassing in gas chambers. Now, that sounds extreme until you listen to some pastors in places like North Carolina and Arizona saying exactly the same thing. It sounds extreme unless you look at the rhetoric of people like the Family Research Council or the American Family Association, which is why I think it's important for us to celebrate the fact that the family owners of Chick-fil-A are no longer trying to bankroll organizations like that. So I guess the long and the short of it is there's a lot at stake. So where did Christianity go wrong here? Because I think that it's fair to use that kind of terminology and say, Clearly, Christianity has gone wrong if the official point of view of the religious right has changed. I'm tempted to poke the bear and use the term evolve, that maybe eventually, on the course thereon, they will evolve to the place where they are where the rest of us were 20 years ago. And maybe there's hope that maybe not in my lifetime, but maybe in my kids' lifetimes, they'll get all the way to the place of understanding what the world is trying to explain to them in weekends like this one when the U.S. Supreme Court has made rulings like this one. It's a long play. So I'm optimistic that in many ways this reflects 
moving in a different direction, and difference is probably good. But it still reflects this almost infantile idea that if I can't call the bad thing I want to call bad, bad, and ban it one way, I'll ban it some other way. It's consistent with the legislative approach of the religious right on the issue of abortion. Unwilling to have a straight-up yes-no vote because they cannot and should not trust the American public to bend to their will, they find sneaky ways of banning abortion. Ban abortion by threatening the doctors with violence. Ban abortion by making sure that there aren't clinics anywhere near most of the towns in states like Texas. It's as dishonest and hypocritical as that to be shifting your strategy to say, well, I know I said there was no such thing, but now I'm willing to grant that there is, but it's still bad. And uh, I know I said it was bad, but I didn't really mean it was inherently bad. I just meant that the activity was bad. It's very disingenuous. And a lot of it comes from a core issue of the line between what I would describe as a genuine Christianity and Christianity as it has been perverted by the holiness movement. See, there's two kind of concepts here that I've heard batted around, and I I can't give a citation on who said what, because I'm not really looking at that. I didn't pull the data. But there's this notion of a great commission, Jesus, and a great commandment, Jesus. And Jesus did issue sort of both of those statements. They both can actually be found in Matthew's Gospel, just to pick one book in the Bible. And one is the notion of going and making disciples, this evangelism, this conversion idea, which in its worst form, can turn into people who are, again, part of the religious right, actually engaging in behaviors that's trying to, at best, persuade, or perhaps, depending on how you feel about indoctrination, at worst, trick people into becoming part of the church. That focus. The other notion is the great commandment, Jesus, who told us that we were to love God with all our heart and soul and strength and mind, and love our neighbor as we love ourselves. And unfortunately, sometimes the Great Commission group doesn't do a very good job of loving their neighbor, and has to redefine love your neighbor as hate the sin, and somehow reconcile themselves with the inconsistency of that, which I've been calling out since that episode I mentioned early on in the very first year of Inappropriate Conversations, number 37, I believe, always being happy. So, holiness movement creeps in because then you get this notion that the church can't afford to allow those people in. It's an idea that I've mentioned, I think, on an episode of Walk the Earth recently about what does it mean if your worldview about the church being the body of Christ allows itself to interpret, instead of what Paul said in his letters to the church at Corinth, and Rome for that matter, that the body of Christ was made up of different parts and those different parts had no business telling one part it was better than the other or worse than the other or somehow didn't belong. The holiness movement perverts that into an idea that if sinners are allowed in the building, then the church can get infected. Now, I do this all the time. There's no way somebody who's a committed, politically active Christian, part of a church where the holiness movement has taken foot, who will tell you that they have any interest in banning sinners. But they would have to admit, I think under cross-examination, that they're interested in banning some sinners, or some sinners have to pretend that they're no longer facing temptations they are to be welcome in, or rules get set up about behaviors that are and aren't permitted, so adultery is okay as long as it's heterosexually oriented, that kind of concept. Because the holiness movement is most interested in protecting the church from outside influences. And I think people who are deeply committed to that not inherently perverted worldview, but one that has become a perverted worldview, in my opinion, uh, have to deal with the fact 
that this is probably the worst weekend that they've ever had in their life as a politically active Christian. And instead of dealing head on with what some of the things that are happening should tell them about what is wrong with their worldview, instead of diving into the Bible and trying to find where the Bible is leading them in a different direction, opening the scriptures, if you will, they're instead doubling down on their political point of view. Because even if they did open the scriptures and find that the kinds of things that I would cite are true, the kind of arguments that are being made by a man I'm going to introduce right now as our different drummer are true, they would probably tell themselves that they need to stop reading not just John Shore's book, but the Bible itself. I firmly believe that there are people in the religious right who, if presented with biblical arguments for why they should drop their anti-gay campaigns and trust the Lord to do what he will in converting the hearts and souls of people, might give up their Bible before they would give up their political worldview. The rest of today's inappropriate conversation is going to have a lot to do with someone named John Shore. John Shore has a uh, website, just johnshore.com, where he refers to himself as uh, touring God's patience since 1958. But he's known for more than that. He is one of the principals behind the Nalt Christians Project, the Not All Like That Christians Project. And he also is the source material for the rest of the show today, because I do intend to use the rest of this podcast to answer a question. Is there such a thing as gay Christian? I'm going to let the gay Christians answer that question. But first, maybe a little bit of biographical information would help. On his website, says this. When in 2007, John Shore, who is straight for what it's worth, began using a platform of his blog to advocate for full and equal acceptance of LGBT people within Christianity, when, that is, he began making his seminal arguments for why it is no sin whatsoever to be unashamedly gay, he advocated alone in the blogosphere. No other Christian blogger of any prominence would come out and help him fight for the cause of LGBT equality, in which he believed with such articulate, compassionate, and ultimately sea-changing fervor. Quoting Shore, I didn't care that I was alone. I kept writing and fighting anyway. I knew that if I just kept making the irrefutable case in all the ways the case needed to be made for the truth that God cares no more about a person's sexual orientation than he or she does about the color of their eyes, the Christian tide would have to change, because right after all is right. Back then you couldn't find a Christian leader, progressive or otherwise, who would dare to stick up for the idea that it's no sin to be gay. They were all too afraid of losing their congregations, their speaking gigs, their book deals. Today you can't throw a stick without hitting four progressive Christian leaders who support LGBT equality. It's a beautiful, wonderful thing. So let me tell you one thing right now about somebody I've never met. I've never met John Shore. I only know him through his blog and through his books. But tell us a little bit about the heart of this man right there. I know a lot of people. I know a lot of people that I would describe as good people who wouldn't be able to resist the resentment. I was out there first. I was doing this alone. Where were you guys when I needed your help? He doesn't carry that. He basically says now it's easy to find people who are carrying on the cause and rather than, I told you so, or where, where would you when I needed you, he says instead, it's a beautiful, wonderful thing. And it's not like there's not consequences. I believe Brendan Robertson lost a book deal this year for probably no other reason than actually being gay. 
It's a controversial topic. I haven't done in a lot of the research myself, but there's nothing in the opinions he had on a proposed book that got nixed that are any different from the opinions that I've read from that same publisher, from other writers. The main difference is if you're advocating for LGBT equality and you're straight, you're less likely to get persecuted, aka lose your publishing deal, than if you happen to be advocating for that. And it seems, well, perhaps self-serving because you're gay. So in some ways, Shore was serving a purpose by speaking up when no one would. The first time I actually saw some of the arguments that you see from Shore was not from Shore himself. In 2007, I was unaware of the work that Shore was doing. I would have encountered the ideas through people that he influenced. The first time I can remember sharing a blog post related to this issue, I think it was called The Gay Hatin' Gospel, was by Fred Clark on his Slacktivist blog. Well, Clark has this to say in a testimonial quotation at Shore's website. This is Clark speaking. John Shore helps me unlearn something I shouldn't have learned in seminary, which is that there's a dichotomy between being pastoral and being prophetic. Watching him consistently do both of those things at once reminds me that, yes, being pastoral to the victims and prophetic to those who have hurt them is how it ought to be. I'm a big fan and beneficiary of John's writing. I mentioned as a different drummer in that opening the scriptures, inappropriate conversation show, Nicole Villacrez, one of the co-hosts of Greetings from Nowhere, and one of the key ways that this dialogue that I've been having and frankly needing to have has carried on. Let me connect this thought here right near the end of this different drummer segment because it's important. There are issues that I have not really been able to discuss actively and freely with members of my family. They don't want to hear it or they're not prepared to talk about it or it's too risky, or it's too inappropriate, uh, whatever the reasons may be, to have the conversations that I then needed to have needed to happen with somebody who was not family. And that was a role that I think Nicole Villacrez and others related to the Simply Syndicated family of podcasts and Rick Moyer on his Take Him With You podcast that they have done. And so I'm very pleased to say that I think I'm going to be attending the Pride 48 live event in Las Vegas later this year to be in the audience, to see and hear these podcasts that I've come to enjoy live and in person. And you'd almost have to say that perhaps chief among them is Greetings from Nowhere, because it was the gateway for me. Well, it was also the gateway for me to John Shore. Walk the Earth as a podcast is all about switching from one church to another. And one of the things that I didn't really carry a banner, there wasn't a conversation I had first thing in the door of every church we visited, but it was back in the back of my mind as a concept that I, I'd made a commitment I'm not going to join a church that I wouldn't be welcome to join if I were gay. It's that simple. And by join, I mean join. Join to the fullest extent. Participate in the choir. Read scripture. Help serve communion. Full membership. And on the Tech Support Rich show on simplysyndicated.com, I told Richard Smith that probably eliminated about 80% of the churches within reasonable driving distance of my home. We may be now at a time where that number is only 75%. Or we may at least be moving in the right direction. But it's almost important for me to put it down there as a marker. To make a statement on a podcast at this point in time, the weekend after the U.S. Supreme Court has scratched the word gay off gay marriage and said, in the United States, there's just marriage. And we're no longer going to have some states that allow gay people to participate and other states that don't. Which doesn't mean that gay marriage has come to every state. It just means that the Supreme Court has decided... Enough of your silly bickering. There's just marriage. 
And that's all there is to it. It might make sense to put the marker down now to say, during the process of Walk the Earth and supporting the Walk the Earth podcast, both of which, Inappropriate Conversations and Walk the Earth, can be found on Stitcher. Look for Inappropriate Conversations, you'll find the other show. Likewise, the uh, website at www.inappropriateconversations.org is the place where both of those shows are posted as they, re- as they get released. But in the process of saying I'm not going to join a church that is not going to be that welcoming, uh, I finally found one. And we joined the church, and one of the first things that happened was the pastor kind of called my bluff and said, hey, if, if, if we were going to pursue this sort of coursework in a small group meeting of some sort or within one of our Sunday school groups, what are the resources you'd recommend? And it dawned on me that I've kind of done this without a guide. Short of the Bible, which has actually been crucial and instrumental, and if you have three and a half hours, you can listen to that thought on the opening of the scriptures, episode 150. But no, I didn't really have any other material. I'd had influences coming from people who'd been influenced by the material, but I wasn't holding the book in my hand. Well, now I'm holding the book in my hand, and it's a book that Nicole recommended when I reached out to her. First and foremost, to say, hey, I'm kind of being asked if I have a point of view about resources. What resources do you think are out there? And she said the number one resource you need is unfair. Christians and the LGBT question, written by John Shore. I believe, if I'm not mistaken, the book was originally published in 2011. He's been ahead of the curve, not just talking about this issue on his blog since 2007, but this book is now four years old. This book is as old as maybe the first or second podcast I recorded on the issue myself. So what I want to do the rest of the way is just kind of allow the web to take care of any other biographical material. If you're curious about John Shore, I definitely recommend the book Unfair. It'd be crazy for me not to recommend it because I'm about to quote from it fairly liberally. And I hope that John Shore would not have an objection with that because I'm trying to do some of the things that he started years and years ago. Answering the question, can you be gay and Christian? Is there such a thing as a gay Christian? This book came from him asking that question. Just putting it out there on his blog, say, hey, feel like there's a bunch of voices here which are, A, not being heard, and B, we're beginning to hear people deny that they actually exist. Do any of you who fit this combination want to share your story? He got hundreds of letters. 300 by the time he wrote the introduction to his book. I'm quite sure that you, you can add hundreds more since then. He writes a column where he interacts with people, so he gets... He still gets letters on a regular basis. Let's put it that way. I don't doubt that the publication of this book originally in 2011, which then led to a revised publication a year or so later, would have been more letters coming in. The book itself only has maybe 30, and I'm going to, again, look at 17 of them. I'm going to try to treat them as if they're epistles. So if you think about kind of how would you put together a set of letters to the church universal? It's almost a set of letters to the church that's not completely unlike, I'm thinking Dr. Seuss and Horton Hears a Who. This is almost a group of people who are yelling through their dust speck, we are here, we are here, we are here. But it's far more profound than that. Because they're not just you know saying that this is real and they're here, they're wrestling with these things, they're trying to deal with an unwelcoming church. They're also sharing their story along the way. So that's why I'm going to treat this a little bit like letters. If you think of the the way Paul treated, the way he wrote to churches in Rome and Corinth and Galatia and elsewhere, he was speaking in somewhat specific ways to those particular sets of readers. And it's just we've been drafting off the wisdom of those conversations for centuries since. 
epistles. It's kind of what that means to me when I make a distinction between, well, what does it mean for something to be an epistle and what does it mean for something to be a letter? It could just be their synonyms. But if there's a subtle distinction, I think that's it. That an epistle, at least within the church, is a letter written to a specific group that has tremendous value to all other groups, or at least many other groups. So a couple of these I'll share in their entirety. The length of maybe Paul's letter to the Romans, Paul's two letters to Corinth. Others I'll treat in sort of an excerpted way. Each one of them, I think, tells us a slightly different story. And I'll use geography to distinguish them. Again, much like you find in the New Testament. In the letter to the book of Romans is nothing more than a letter to the church at Rome. The book of Galatians is nothing more than the letter to the church at Galatia. But in this case, taking John Shore's lead as our different drummer, I'm not going to talk about who the letter's to. I'm going to talk about who the letters are from. And when I'm done, I think there'll be very little doubt that there is such a thing as gay Christian, and we have heard from them. And my hope is that we continue to listen, because there's many, many more of them we need to hear from. Small town quirks and coolness, yeah. We're sending you our warm greetings from nowhere. Two best friends with a lot to say about small town life in the USA. Christina and Nicole got gossip to share, and they're sending every one of you. Greetings from nowhere. I was tempted to dive right in. I think what I should start doing, though, is saying I'm going to read these, and I'm not making any attempt to change my voice, impersonate anybody. In some cases, some of the letters in their entirety, it's not necessarily clear whether the person who wrote it is male or female. I'm not necessarily going to take any effort to specify whether the person who's writing is bisexual or homosexual. I'm just going to dive right in and read them, which will help, because in some of the cases where I'm going to read just an excerpt, I might be skipping over that material, I don't think it's important. Again, we don't necessarily have to hear the voice. This isn't an audio book. It's a set of letters being read in the voice inside our heads, just like any other letter or publication or blog post we might read. In this case, it's my voice. I guess for whatever, for better or worse, you're stuck with that. The letter from a gay Christian in Washington State. I'm a woman. I'm 18 years old. I'm Christian. I'm queer. There are days when I consider myself lucky. When I realized that I was something other than straight, there was no despair. There were no desperate prayers for conversion. I acknowledged who I was as a fact, and I moved on. I had spent the better part of the previous year studying the Bible, searching to understand why people who were born gay were still condemned by God. I was emotionally in a place where desiring women as well as men was perfectly acceptable within myself. The only real concern was telling others. But outside the church, that concern faded away as I came out to people. I knew that I had surrounded myself with loving, affirming friends who didn't give a care about whom I liked, and that was enough for me to be comfortable, indeed casual, about discussing my orientation with them. One can be fairly confident that, in the general area where I live, more people will be accepting of a woman who likes women than won't. They won't glare at me if they see me holding hands with a girlfriend, they won't pretend that my love is any less legitimate than theirs, or that I don't deserve the love that I'm receiving. Inside of the church, however, it's a different story. 
I look around my large Bellevue church, and I see heterosexual couples raising three, four, five kids to be heterosexual, sometimes to fit into old-fashioned gender roles. The man is the breadwinner, the wife stays at home, etc. I see men's groups events about treating your wife, always your wife, well. And the singles group? Well, no one's going to go there seeking same-sex partnership. I see heterosexuals everywhere. Outside the church, it's no big deal because I can usually turn to a gay friend who's literally right there and know that we see the same world at the same moment. It's a world in which we don't always feel like we fit, but that's okay because we have each other. On Sundays, I'm alone. This hit me especially one particular service when I had volunteered to read scripture aloud with my mother. I was sitting at the front of the church, besides the pastors, when all of a sudden I felt a horrible wave of loneliness wash over me. Looking around, I didn't see a single person with whom I could confidently identify. They were all straight. I was queer. Barely anyone knew I was queer, and I didn't know anyone in the church who was openly gay. Even in a church as large as the one I attend, I'm sure it would have gotten around if there had been even one such person. What was even worse was that I was in front of an entire congregation, alone, with no one to turn to. I couldn't contact my girlfriend for comfort. Being alone, when you don't want to be, is probably one of the most awful feelings in the world. I hope that one day I can be out and proud before my fellow Christians at church. I know there is nothing wrong with me. I know there is nothing wrong with me. But when I'm alone, I can't take the burden of a church's sadness. I just can't. Excerpts from the first letter from a gay Christian in California. When I was a senior in high school, a girl from my youth group admitted to me that she was gay. Rather than rallying around her or providing her the love and support she surely needed in this time of vulnerability, I joined the rest of my youth group in shunning her. At the direction of our youth pastor, we did not invite this girl to any social events or include her in our circles anymore. Needless to say, she quit attending church soon after that. I am not proud of what I did to my friend, but that event certainly did reinforce to me the necessity of keeping my secret deep in the closet. After graduating high school, I attended a strict fundamentalist Christian university, where I was placed in an all-girls dorm, surrounded by girls who were at college to get an MRS degree, a Mrs. degree. I hated being in the dorm listening to the endless talk of which boy was most desirable and who was dating whom. I hated it because I didn't understand it, and because I could never, ever tell anyone about the cute girl two doors down or the girl who sat next to me in freshman English. Surrounded by people, I felt more alone than ever. Add to this the rumors that occasionally circulated about girls who were found kissing in closets and were immediately sent packing, and I knew I was in unsafe territory. All this time, I never prayed about my homosexuality. I knew God loved me, and I loved him, but it was almost as if I felt like that love would disappear if he discovered my secret. I kept hoping that I would study enough, or learn enough, or serve enough to finally find that secret formula that would make me like everyone else. She goes forth to say that uh, she finally heard loud and clear that she needed to talk to somebody. She needed to get counseling, and she chose to speak to the pastor's wife at the chapel at the school. Picking back up, 
Unfortunately, my pastor's wife had not been trained to deal with recovering homosexuals, so she was able to offer little help. She suggested that I tell a couple of close friends so that they could pray for me and keep me accountable for my sin issues. Not knowing what else to do, and desperate to solve this pro- the horrible problem in my life, and terrified that my sin would make me ineligible for serving God, I followed her instructions to the letter. Coming out to my Christian friends turned out to be the biggest disaster of my life. Each time I told them something along the lines of, I have a sin problem, I am struggling with homosexuality, I know that it's wrong, and I, and I don't want to be this way, and I'm getting help, will you please pray for me? And each time the friend would panic and abandon me. A couple of my friends told me that they had spoken with their parents about me and had been advised not to be friends with me anymore. Others said that we could still be friends, but we would now have rules to follow, such as keeping open our dorm doors when we were visiting each other and not eating together in the cafeteria. Some pushed notes under my dorm room door telling me that they couldn't or wouldn't talk to me anymore. My best friend just said, why are you telling me this, and left me. She never explained why she disappeared, but every time I called to see if I could do dinner or something, she always had other plans. So there I was, struggling with what I thought was the biggest, worst sin issue in the world, and my support network had utterly fallen away from me. Jumping to the conclusion of her letter. If I could say anything to evangelical Christians, I would ask them to do two things. First, please consider the people Jesus spent time around and the people he condemned. He spent time with the outcasts of society, those who were left out and not accepted by the rest of society. He never carried a sign that shouted hateful words. His condemnation was reserved for those who were so proud that they prevented others from coming to him. His anger was directed at those who crossed off his whosoever and posted a list of acceptable people. For the rest of the world, he had nothing but compassion and mercy. I'm afraid that the church has missed its opportunity to share Jesus' love with hurting members of the LGBT community. Too many people have been turned off to church and to God because of the hatred spewed at them for who they are. The second thing I would ask is for evangelical Christians to educate themselves and consider other perspectives. Homosexuality is not a choice. Do you really think I would have chosen to be this way? To have to deal with all this difficulty and pain? You cannot get HIV from hugging a gay person. Please, please, combat your ignorance with some education. If you don't know much about LGBT people, get to know some. Spend time with them. Love them the way Christ does. You'll accomplish two things with this. You will expand your own horizons, your own ministry, and you will allow another human being to see God's love. Because that's the crux of the issue. The church is teaching LGBT people that God hates them. When the same Christ who died on the cross for straight people also died for the LGBT community. Don't nullify Christ's work with your own hate and ignorance. Now when I refer to the first letter from California, don't let that make it feel like the second letter from California is the same person. It's just that I chose two letters from that same state. And now I want to refer to the second letter from a gay Christian in California. I was a licensed minister within the Church of the Nazarene. I was well-known and well-liked, respected across many of our district and denomination for my work with music and the youth of our church. 
Little did they know the constant battle I was fighting. At the age of 25, I tried one final time to prove to the world and to myself that I was straight. I got married. I gave her the opportunity to back out before the marriage took place by telling her about my homosexual feelings. She said that she wanted to help me become straight. We were married, and we continued working in the church while I continued working towards my ordination. As the time for my ordination grew near, I confessed my homosexual feelings to an older pastor mentor and asked for his prayers as I prepared for a lifetime of ministry in the church. Instead of helping me and praying for me, he turned on me. He told me that unless I withdrew from the process of ordination, he would out me and have me thrown out of the church. I could not imagine not being able to be a part of the church that I had grown to love. So with much sadness, I withdrew from the ministry in the Church of the Nazarene. I continued to work in the church over the next 20 years in many different levels, but mostly in the area of music. Despite what had happened, I still loved my church and my God and would not turn my back and walk away. During this time, my wife and I were blessed with three beautiful daughters, who from the moment I laid eyes on them became the most precious things in the world to me. I even went to seek professional help and had many sessions with a Christian psychologist. Nothing worked. I was unhappy with not being able to become straight. I was unhappy with my career choice because I knew I was called to be a minister. As a result, I never stayed in one job for a long period of time. I could not be content not doing what God had called me to do. But what was I to do? The church taught that I, being gay, was a sinner, and as such was not acceptable to God and the church as a minister. My life fell apart piece by piece. My work fell apart. My love of the church declined to the point that it became a chore to go to church. My marriage suffered to the point of divorce after 24 years of marriage. Divorce is another thing in the Church of the Nazarene that is highly frowned upon. At the lowest point of my life, no family, no job, no church, and nothing to look forward to, I turned to the only place I knew to turn, the Word of God. I began to read and study and search the scriptures like I never had before, looking for answers to what had happened in my life. For the first time in my life, I was reading and asking God to explain the scriptures to me instead of someone else's ideas or reading a commentary. It was just me, God, and His Holy Word. Slowly, through prayer and study, I began to discover that I was not a sinner just because I was gay. God did not hate me because of who I was. As time went by, and the realization that God loved me just as I was began to take hold in my life, the years of doubt and self-hatred began to fall away. Finally, at the age of 52, after 40 years of daily struggle, I became free. The day I stood up in church, not Nazarene, and said that I was gay, and knew beyond a shadow of a doubt that God loved me just the way I am, was the beginning of life for me a life finally free of the self-hatred and doubt instilled in me by the church, a life free to live the way God wanted me to, being the perfect creation that God created me to be. I have lost my family through all of this. My family was always very conservative and church-oriented. All of my friends were in the church. When I came out, they all turned their backs on me. My own children have not spoken to me in over five years. It has been hard, but God has sustained me and helped me through it all. I knew of the importance of finding a church where I could fit in. I knew of the importance of church fellowship, and I still had the desire to be of help in the ministry of the church. After all, once God places a call on your life, you will never be happy until you say yes to Him 
and fulfill that calling. I know this is going to be an American-centric show, but this seems like the right time to expand that horizon and share a letter from a gay Christian in Australia. With a deep and abiding sense that something was wrong with me, I never pursued my involvement with the church. That was until my late 20s. Despite the beginnings of a successful career as an economist, I left the Reserve Bank of Australia to study theology. My primary motivation was to try and change myself so that I could have what my social circle considered a proper relationship. But so much of my energy was focused on maintaining the appropriate social facade that there was very little behind the image to give to another human being. Long story short, God didn't change me. Not for lack of trying on my part. I spent so many nights crying myself to sleep because of an aching loneliness. After 15 years, everything changed for me when a friend pushed me to consider that I could be gay and Christian. This was truly a radical thought. Through exploring it, I was able to come to terms with my sexuality. I realized that without any conscious volitional control, my heart would fall in love with men. Why worship a god of love if doing so means denying the possibility of experiencing love? From the point that I accepted my own ability to love, to receive love, everything in my life changed. I have met and married, to the limits of the law, my life partner. We've been together for over six years, and in that time I can unequivocally say that I have become a much better person. I've become a much better Christian. I now walk closer to God than ever before. I don't know if I will ever get to heaven, but I certainly know life on earth is no longer a hell I need to escape. I love my life and the people in it far more now than I ever could before. This epistle from Australia kind of reminds me of a email or a posting actually online that I saw from a friend who's somewhat more local. I decided that I wanted to share it on the Inappropriate Conversations page, but there's a risk. I live in one of these states where somebody can be fired for their job for no other reason than being gay, meaning that if she wanted to share not just the same idea as the writer from Australia, but even more depth and detail about, A, what does it mean to say that if you're going to be gay and try to be Christian, you have to be celibate, you can never experience intimacy. And the mistake that is, again, what does it mean to talk about being in love with a God of love, if love is something you're not supposed to know anything about because of who you are. But she also spoke in that letter about her relationship opening up a, it's the triangle, I guess I've referred to before, right? That if you're in a relationship that is a loving, intimate bond between two people, historically you hear this, the man and woman talk, enter into it there. But in this case, two women, and both of you have a loving relationship with God, and the Holy Spirit is working inside that triangle, a lot of great deal of, of exponential spiritual growth can occur. This friend of mine shared that online. I've been unable to share that directly on the Inappropriate Conversations Facebook page. I'm debating whether to put it on as a guest post on the Inappropriate Conversations website at inappropriateconversations.org. Continuing with the international theme, here's a letter from a gay Christian in Mexico. Much of his life was spent in America, but Mexico is where he resides now. I think the portion of the letter I'm going to share will explain all that. At the end of my senior year, I joined the Army National Guard. The Army offered me what I was looking for, money and a way out. Over the next 20 months, I went back and forth about how, it, how I felt about my homosexuality. At times, I would feel terrible guilt over it, left over from my upbringing. Other times, I would feel completely secure in who I was. 
In August of 2005, I left for training for a mission to Iraq. I arrived in Iraq in October of 2005. This was one of the most intense learning experiences of my life. It was a face full of reality. Life in that country is very different than it is in America. There is no way to understand the poverty without seeing it firsthand. For the majority of the time I was there, I worked in a military detainment center. Halfway through my six-month tour, I went home on leave for two weeks. While I was home, I used my younger sister's cell phone. Can you see where this is going? One night, on, while on leave, I lied to my mother about where I was going for the evening. To make a long story short, she didn't discover that I had lied about that night until I was back overseas. The first time we spoke on the phone after I'd returned to duty, she told me that she knew about my lie that night. Only, this time, her reaction was much different than I'd expected. She told me that she accepted and loved me for who I am, and that she wanted anyone I loved to feel accepted and loved in her home. That moment between her and me will light my soul for the rest of my life. Without knowledge of what my mother had said to me, the very same night my older sister sent me an email begging my forgiveness for how she reacted to me coming out to her and telling me that she accepts me and loves me. I cannot describe the difference in me as a man after this night. I'll just say that after 12 months in Iraq, the two closest people in my life accepting me and one very near-death experience, I finally and truly knew who I was in this world. I returned home in November 2006 and in spring 2007 moved to New York City to study musical theater at the American Musical and Dramatic Academy. Two months after moving to New York, I met the most classy, well-spoken, intelligent, cultured man I'd ever met in my life. I had been with him for four years now. We lived in New York for two years while I finished school, and then we moved to Mexico, his home country, where we have now lived for two years. I love my partner with all my heart and soul. I am bound to him for life. We would be living in the U.S., but that I love and am fully committed to him isn't enough to allow me to sponsor him for a green card. If he were a woman, it would be enough, but oh well. When I returned from Iraq, I had learned two basic truths. One, it's okay that I'm gay. It's not a sin. And two, I need God in my life every day. Since I returned from service, God has been a consistent part of my life. I won't lie and say that it's every single day. I, I wish it were, but sometimes I get so caught up in my own life that I forget him until I need him again for something. But that's not because I'm gay. It's because I'm human. I love my Lord and speak to him often. I still read my Bible. I still pray for guidance and understanding. I have seen the ugly face of judgment, so that is one thing I never want to do or be for others. Through my experiences, I have learned a lot about being a Christian, and I learn more every day. The only thing I wish were different about my past is that I had had more guidance in my walk with Christ. I felt very alone and very afraid for much of my life. That is not the purpose of Christians or Christ's church. We are here to tell others about his free gift of love, yes, and to try to be more like him. But above all, we are here to love others in the way he does, unconditionally. The first letter from a gay Christian in Florida. So this is where I'm at. I've decided to allow God to work through me, and now I am working again on becoming a minister. My first step is to take each day, one at a time, and to let him guide me. I've learned for myself that God's grace is not earned, but rather given freely through his son Jesus. I know a lot of people out there who feel that God does not love them because of who they are, because of what they do, because of where they are. 
I've been there and done that. I'm writing this to let you know that God's love is boundless. No matter where you are, who you are, or what you do, God loves you. And to my LGBT friends, and to anyone else who thinks you can't be Christian and gay, you're simply mistaken about that. You can be both. I am both. God's love is boundless. He is all-powerful, all-present, and all-knowing. So how can we limit him and who he is and whom he loves? The second letter from a gay Christian in Florida. As a teenager, I did not especially like the chore of mowing the lawn in the middle of South Florida summers. But while doing so, I would often converse with God. Countless times on paths back and forth across the lawn, I begged God to take away the one thing that made me unacceptable to him. Why do I have this sinful compulsion to look at men, I asked him. Why don't I feel attracted to girls? That is the beginning of the letter. And it ties out to the point that I really wanted to share from this one at the end of this letter. In the meantime, this is another story of someone who was honest with a woman about being having homosexual temptation and getting married and losing his fight against something that he really couldn't change and, and how all that went south. But picking up at the end of the letter, along with losing my family, I also lost the ability to serve in my church as the musician and singer I had been. I willingly stepped down from my volunteer church position because I knew that once the news about me got out, it would cause problems, and our pastor would be put in the uncomfortable position of having to ask me to quit. I still desire to lead worship and participate in mission work. Coming out as gay has caused me to question many aspects of the evangelical brand of Christianity. I've become a bit disillusioned and somewhat cynical about church as an institution. I know the majority of churches do great things for their communities and congregants. I just don't feel like I fit in, yet. Many people at my church know that I'm gay. They treat me with love as Christians should. However, I don't feel truly accepted. I feel that they are loving me because it is their Christian duty to do so. I feel like they are just trying to build a relationship with me so that one day they can have the talk with me. Maybe that's my own issue to deal with. Not too long ago, I was mowing the grass again. As I was pushing the lawnmower up and down the lawn, I began expressing my fears of and discontentment with both Christians and my adjustments to being an out gay man. I believe that in the moment, God spoke to me. You know, here we are mowing the grass again, he said, and still you are worried about your sexual orientation. I love you just the way you are. Let it go. So every day... I have to practice letting go of the desire to be accepted by my Christian culture. I have to let go of other people's notions of God's plan for my life. I have to let go of the idea that I will never again be welcome to sing in church or serve on a mission. I have to hope. I have found that being gay for me is about letting go of my way and trusting God with His. The Letter from a Gay Christian in Louisiana I'm a 23-year-old lesbian, and my parents are in no way capable of dealing with that fact. I was raised in a very strict, conservative Southern Baptist household, and while my parents aren't crazy fundamentalists, they're just intolerant enough to think that being gay is the ultimate slap in the face to God. Years ago, they learned that I was a lesbian, and the resulting fallout was horrific. I retreated out of cowardice, and in order to regain their trust, I lied to them that it was just a phase. The past three years have been horrible for me, 
I feel like I've stopped developing emotionally because I'm trying to remain in this limbo of striving for their approval without fully committing to the kind of life they want me to lead. Marriage, kids, church every Sunday, etc. It's all the more difficult for me because I truly love my parents and can't conceive of giving up a relationship with them. They're kind, funny, smart people. I think being gay is the only thing I could possibly be that would absolutely devastate them. I haven't given up being a Christian, but I've been really buckling under all of this, and I wish I had a person of faith around to talk to. But the pastors in this deep southern town aren't the progressive types. I just want to lay this burden down somewhere. I don't know what to do at this point. I just met a girl I really like, and I'd like to move on with my life and experience a healthy relationship with her. I can't do that in my current position, though. My father, whom I love so much, wants me to move back home and go to grad school at the university where he teaches. He thinks it would be good for me and would cause him and me to grow closer. On some level, I agree with him about that. But another part of me wonders if it would be best for me to practice with my parents a scorched earth policy. If I should just tell them once and for all that I'm gay and then stay away from them long enough for them to at least start getting over it. I know what would happen if I moved home and told them who I really am. They would be so, so hurt. And I would never be at peace from their efforts to save me. I would probably lie down and submit to them out of my feelings of guilt and love for them. A letter from a gay Christian in Georgia. All of this shunning and mistreatment of this biblical discipline was intended to show me the Christian fellowship I was going to be missing out on. However, I was highly resolved not to go back to a life of lies and misery. My church had to disfellowship me off their roster. In another public worship service, they prayed for the death of my sin, including my physical death. Yes, they asked God to kill me if it meant that I would not bring reproach upon the name of Jesus Christ. It was the lowest point of my life. Even my own mom and her evangelical family cut me off, cut me out of the family. They refused to speak to me, and my mom said that she had hated what I had become, a lesbian, and that I was a despicable human being. I went to live with my grandma, the woman to whom I was closer than anyone else in the world. She had been sick. We soon found out she had leukemia, and she was given six to eight weeks to live. She made it almost three months. When she died, I thought I was going to join her. My heart was almost totally broken. A few months after my grandma died, during my first Christmas without her, my mom's family had their usual Christmas gathering, to which I was not invited. They did, however, invite my ex to bring our children. My mom even took my ex and our children on a cruise. It was their way of punishing me for choosing my lifestyle. My ex enrolled our children in a Christian school, where I was not allowed to take part in their education. If I attempted to, the children would be expelled from their school. When I went to their school activities, I was shunned and usually left sitting alone, a wide circle of empty chairs around me, as if I had a contagious disease. It was humiliating to be in a room filled with people I had once loved and ministered to, who now wouldn't sit in the same row of seats with me. Knowing that I was now walking in truth for the first time in my life allowed me to hold my head high. At times, it was a bitter pill to swallow, but in the end, it showed me how it feels to be judged, and I thank God for that lesson.
a letter from a gay Christian in Kansas. That September, they sent me to a Focus on the Family Love One Out conference. And it was at that conference that I realized, I'm not sure why, probably because the whole thing was kind of creepy, that I didn't like these ministries that claimed they could change my feelings. I didn't, after all, want to change my feelings. I shouldn't have to change my feelings. From that point on, I was able to start the difficult work of coming to terms with my identity as a gay woman. It took another four years, though, before God healed the holes in my faith. More importantly, it was only after meeting my partner and experienced romantic and physical love that I was able to fully understand what love is, and therefore what God is. Without her, I would have come to terms with my sexuality and faith eventually, but would have taken years longer. I am a Christian again, after four years of feeling lost. My homecoming was sweet. For the first time in my life, I know what it means to be a new creation. For the first time in my life, I know what Paul means when he writes, The Spirit himself testifies with our spirit that we are children of God. I know that the Spirit testifies with me, and it goes deeper, now, than mere emotions that I have. Because I have the assurance of that Spirit, and the love and support of my church family, I can say to those who doubt that anyone who is gay can also be Christian that their problem is not with me, but with God. If they don't like the way I live my life, they need to take it up with Him. So I say to my evangelical brothers and sisters, and to my family, look at the fruit. Jesus told us that we would know false prophets by the fruit they bear. That a good tree cannot produce bad fruit, nor can a bad tree produce good fruit. My relationship has produced good fruit. Accepting my sexual identity has produced good fruit. Hiding and denying my sexuality produced bad fruit. A letter from a gay Christian in Texas. The pursuit of honesty begins by looking into the mirror of the soul. I had to first accept the fact that all the years of praying, crying, and pleading with God to change my sexuality had not, in that regard, made any difference at all. God had not healed me. I would never be ex-gay. And so finally I chose to accept this reality as a fact and to embrace who I really was, a gay man trusting Christ's finished work on the cross, a gay man striving to bring himself into full relationship with God. I was also a gay man with AIDS, who day by day was literally trusting God for his health. And for the first time in my life, I realized that God truly does love me as I am. I had always thought that the change I wanted was to be made straight, but the change God wanted me to experience was the healing of my heart from self-hatred and shame to joy and gratitude. I began to learn how to receive Christ's forgiveness and how to forgive myself. The sense of freedom and peace this brought me was and continues to be unbelievable. Full commitment to honesty and authenticity has not been easy. I often don't measure up. But for me, there's no going back. I have been blessed beyond measure with friends who love me, a steady job with medical insurance, and so far, reasonably good health. God answered that cry of my heart. I am not, after all, going through this alone. And yes, in a way, through all that, I was born again. A letter from a gay Christian in Colorado. It wasn't long, though, before new questions began bubbling up. If God can delight in me while I'm still fully homosexual, then why all the condemnation that the church has drilled into me for so many years? If I can experience emotional and spiritual wholeness without first changing my orientation, 
What else have Christians gotten wrong in their assumptions and conclusions about gay people? If the church could be so wrong about this, what else might it be wrong about? The questions kept pouring out and frightening me, but I couldn't ignore them any more than I could stop breathing. Fortunately, I found others at the ministry who were asking similar questions, and so we were able to talk through them together. I asked God repeatedly to stop me before I went off the deep end and became a full-blown heretic, but if anything, God seemed to be encouraging my questioning, even when I directly challenged him and everything I'd ever been taught about him. It was disillusioning at first to discover how quickly everything I'd been taught about homosexuality fell apart under scrutiny. But it was also a relief to realize that being gay didn't mean I was mentally ill or doomed to a shortened lifespan or that I was any less capable than normal people of building healthy, enduring relationships. A letter from a gay Christian in Kentucky. I concluded, if God is for me, who can be against me? Romans 8.31 I must answer to God for the life I lead. I cannot go by what modern-day scribes and Pharisees believe and teach. One such as they must answer to God for their life's actions and teachings of bitterness and strife toward gay persons. At times I still think it would be a lot easier if I was not gay. But I also realize that if I weren't gay, I would be a totally different person than I am and would not be able to touch others in the same way God now uses me. Throughout all these years, there's been one thing, one hope, which has kept me from turning from the church and ultimately from God. My own personal experience with God through the spirit of my Messiah Christ. God has helped me deal with all the pain and conflict that most every gay person faces. Experiencing the agape love of God, knowing that God accepted me just as I am, just as he created me, proved to be a foundation unshakable against the false teachings and attitudes I faced. I learned many years ago to stand firm and to apply to my own life the words of Peter the Apostle, Lord, to whom would I go? You have the words of eternal life. John chapter 6 verses 68. And later on in the same letter, my hope is that those of us who are gay will accept that God accepts and desires a personal relationship with each of us, that God desires a unity of hearts between all believers, gay and straight, so that non-believers will intensely see God's love as available to everyone, that the word hypocrite will be removed from our language, that true unity will prevail. I am grateful to God that I am created as I am. I continue to pray for greater trust and reliance on the Holy Spirit in order to live abundantly as I have been made. God has given me, and all Christians who happen to be gay, an opportunity to make a mark for the glory of Christ and the church universal and in society as a whole. The task is before me, before you. May we press on toward the goal to win the prize for which God has called us heavenward in Christ Jesus. Philippians 3, verse 14. I'm going to start the letter from a gay Christian in Ohio with some dialogue that she shares. Pointing to a woman in line at the lunch bar, Nancy said, We can't sit by her. Why? I asked. Because she's gay. What does that mean? It means she likes women. So what? She likes women the way men are supposed to like women, and the Bible says you can't sit at the table with that kind of person. As an adult, I now know that this theological stance is taken from 1 Corinthians 5.11. 
but now I am writing you that you must not associate with anyone who calls himself a brother but is sexually immoral, or greedy, an idolater, or a slanderer, a drunkard, or a swindler. With such a man, do not even eat. Interestingly, I've never seen this verse applied toward anyone but homosexuals who are not specifically mentioned at all. After that childhood experience, the author from Ohio finishes her letter this way. Besides the sexually immoral, mentioned in the verse I cited above, are greedy people, idolaters, slanderers, drunkards, and swindlers. Of all those sorts of people, the only ones not welcomed in most churches are the, quote, sexually immoral, unquote, which is somehow always taken to mean gays. No church holds rallies to legislate against any of those other sorts of persons. They don't take up picket signs damning idolaters or slanderers to hell. My vision of the church is a place where all people who love Jesus are comfortable, and those who don't know him are welcomed. I was really excited to see the church booths at Pride Fest. It was my first time going to such an event, and as I walked past one of the church booths, I heard a Pride participant say, There's a Jesus booth here. His tone was so incredulous and so hopeful. I share with that stranger the hope that someday the Christian and gay communities will share many members. Greetings from the cockpit. This is Captain Scott, and we'd like to thank you for flying the Seder Sphere. This is co-pilot Cindy. We ask you at this time to unfasten your safety belt and release your chairs from their uptight position. We're high-flying with stopovers expected in theater, gaming, movies, television, and other mature destinations. We'd like to thank you for flying the frisky skies, and we hope to see you on our next flight to the Seder Sphere. So that letter ended with a note about pride. June is Pride Month. That's part of the reason that I had decided that this was the point in time to talk about this concept of letters from gay Christians, and the fact that it absolutely begs the question of whether you can be both gay and Christian. I'm sharing just a portion of the letters in John Shore's book, Unfair, which themselves were just a portion of the letters that John got in his call for feedback and information and emails years ago. And all of that is just a portion of the letters that he could have gotten. It reminds me of something that I shared in an earlier Inappropriate Conversations episode. It was one where I referred to uh, St. Peter uh, at great length. He wasn't the different drummer for that one. The different drummer was Rob Bell. But episode 131, called Christianity 301, Taking the Bible Seriously, came out in October of 2013. And among the things I did there, again, focusing a lot on St. Peter, was to talk about Peter's experiences in Acts chapters 10 and 11, I believe, in that ballpark of the book of the Acts of the Apostles in the New Testament, where Peter talks about seeing hallucinations, sort of telling him that if God has declared food clean, even if the Old Testament scriptures say that it's unclean and should not be eaten, he should take and eat it. And the lesson that Peter was to take from this, the lesson he was to learn through a direct experience, was that if God is declaring something acceptable, it is completely unacceptable for a mere believer to disagree. If, is the way it played out in scripture, if Gentiles, who Peter had all along felt like were not going to be Christians, he thought Christianity was initially going to be a sect of Judaism, and maybe even the dominant sect of Judaism. But 
Jesus had called Saul directly to become the Apostle Paul for the purpose of reaching out to the Gentiles. Peter had not experienced this firsthand, but he did. He saw the Holy Spirit entering into the lives of Gentiles. He saw Gentiles experiencing the same kind of infilling and indwelling of the Holy Spirit that Peter himself and so many other believers had encountered years earlier in Jerusalem with the original day of Pentecost. And it was at that point that Peter realized that if the Holy Spirit can move in the lives of these people that he felt were unclean and unworthy and would always be an abomination to God, that God always got to be right. And therefore, he needed to be wrong. And he needed to let that go. Before I jump back into the last couple of letters, looking to the Carolinas at this time of year, which is kind of ironic because the news of the day here as I'm doing this recording is not just the Supreme Court issued a ruling, but also that South Carolina in particular has had a lot of, well, has had a a mass murder on its hands that has forced people in that state to look at their heritage in a slightly different way, to get less defensive about their assumptions and to find the appropriate way to let go. I read a quote from Buddhism this week that's actually right on target. It goes like this. In the end, only three things matter. How much you loved, how gently you lived, and how gracefully you let go of things not meant for you. I'm asking a lot of Christians in America to let go of things not meant for them. I've been challenging people, even directly on this question of gays being married, How does it impact you? Exactly where is your issue with this? Now, in some of these letters that I've shared, there are people who engaged in what I would call highly questionable matrimony. If they believe that a homosexual marrying a heterosexual was going to somehow cure the homosexual of his his homosexuality, again, this part of this holiness idea, right? This notion of bad infections in the church or good infections through matrimony, engaging in a marriage where there would never be true sexual fulfillment or perhaps even the fullest possible level of intimacy because of, well, the sham nature of it, I guess is what I called it way back in the first year of inappropriate conversations. Sometimes you've got to let go of things that aren't meant for you. Supreme Court made a ruling. There's no reason for a whole lot of people within Christianity to be upset about it. The most probably accurate thing you could say for some of those folks who were allegedly losing sleep this weekend over it, this ruling was never meant for you. You should not only let it go, but let it go gracefully, according to the Buddha. Or perhaps Jesus might use a different term. He might use a term like graciously. The most important thing is, how much did you love? And how gently did you live? How many people did you harm that you could have not harmed? How many people did you not love enough that you could have loved more or that you could have loved better? And what got in the way? Because whatever got in the way of those things should be let go, both gracefully and graciously. Which perhaps leads me to the contrast in the last set of letters I want to share. I want to deal with letters from Christians in North Carolina. Here's the first. In 10th grade, I came out to my friends and school and no one really minded, although a good portion were surprised. So things went well for a while, and I came out to my mom on January 9th, 2010 at 9.07 a.m. I came out to my dad the next day. This is Greg speaking. You know that something important has happened in someone's life. 
if they don't just know the date, but they know the time, there have been moments in my life when I can cite both the dates and the times, and it's because they're that important to me. Picking back up with the letter. Things did not go well there. There were many nights of staying up late and talking and talking about it, and then several months of counseling for me from an ex-gay ministry, quotations provided by the author. My parents told me that if I was truly gay, then I had destroyed all of their dreams for my future, and that once I left the house, I would be on my own. Shortly put, my relationship with my parents got so severely damaged that I am now back in the closet. I hate lying to them, but any other course of action would cause too much pain on both sides. Around this time, I prayed to God to show me a sign, indicating whether or not I was meant to be gay. Almost immediately, I had this incredible peace and calmness over me. It's hard to explain, but it was a feeling of rightness and confirmation. That feeling remains with me to this day. So now it's my goal to lay low until I go to college. At that point, my parents will have little influence over me, and I can tell them the truth once and for all. Will they accept it? Probably not at first, and maybe never. But I'm not going to live a lie. What I do know is that I will never stop reaching out to them. The last letter I want to share today is one of the earlier ones in the book. It's another letter from a Christian in North Carolina. And I'm going to share this one in its entirety. I was four years old when I decided that I believed what my parents told me about Jesus. Ever since that day, I tried to become more and more like him. I tried to learn about who God is. I go on mission trips. I teach children's Sunday school. I don't drink or smoke. I read my Bible. I pray daily for the healing of our world. After I graduate from college this year, I plan to go to divinity school so I can better serve others with Christ's love. I'm also gay. I was raised a Southern Baptist from the day I was born. I was homeschooled and never took a single class at a public school, so I wasn't indoctrinated. I need to jump out of the letter for a second. It's interesting that the use of the term indoctrinated is here, and in quotation marks for emphasis, because I think what the letter writer is saying is, indoctrinated by the world. What an interesting concept. Most of the time when you hear the term indoctrination, it's used by people who are not Christian, complaining about the Christian majority in America trying to manipulate school boards and school systems to provide a proscriptive form of religious education that would be tantamount to indoctrination. In other words, taking agnostic, atheist, Jewish kids and forcing them to, you know, forcing them to at least refuse Christianity by having Christianity thrust to them as part of the school curriculum. But this term of indoctrination is a different one altogether. What the writer is saying is that because uh, being homeschooled and never taking a public school class and being very active in the Southern Baptist Church in that local congregation, there was no indoctrination from the world. Back to the letter. I didn't know anyone who was gay. I didn't even know that such a thing existed until I was probably 11 or 12. I've always had wonderful, warm, close relationships with both my parents and my younger brother. I've always considered myself a political moderate who leans toward libertarianism, so I never felt much, if any, attraction toward standard liberal political positions. I have never experienced abuse of any kind. No explanation exists that can explain what, quote, made me gay, unquote. 
I certainly didn't choose it. When I realized I wasn't straight, and wasn't straight became clear to me long before the is gay part did, every single person I knew at the time was deeply opposed to any kind of acceptance of gay people. When I realized what was going on with me, I was terrified. Night after night, I prayed for God to change it, to make me the person that everyone had told me I would be. Then, typically, I would cry myself to sleep. Was the problem with me that I didn't have enough faith, I wondered? I read my Bible more. I spent more time on the websites of groups like Exodus International and others who said they could make me straight. Nothing worked. I stopped trying to change who I was when I was 14, but that didn't really fix things either. It just made it a little easier to breathe. But once I admitted to myself that it was true that I'm gay, a real sense of dread set in. It could never be good, I knew. The best case scenario for my life could never be good. I couldn't do the things that would bring my life meaning. I wanted love and a family. I've always really, really wanted to join the Air Force. But most of all, I just wanted to be able to stop lying all the time. And I really couldn't do that either. For over a year, I was deeply suicidal. I think people assume that being suicidal is a moment, an instance, an event that happens and then is either beaten down or given into. For me, at least, it's never been that way. It's the exhausting grind of living every day, wanting nothing more than for the pain to stop, praying every night that you won't wake up, and starting every morning disappointed. I've stood in the shower, staring at my razor, more times than I can count. I've thought endlessly about how people might react to my suicide. What would happen if I did it? I've scratched my arms raw and dug my fingernails into my palms so hard that I bled, all in an attempt to stop feeling like dying was the best option for me. Better to die now, while things are at least okay. Better to let them remember me like this. Once everyone finds out I'm gay, my life may as well be over. Better for them to never find out. And if this is really who I am, and I knew it was, then there's only one way for that to happen. That was my thinking at 15 years old. Feeling like I would be completely hated and unwanted by the people I loved was unbearable. Every time I heard them make a snide comment about Ellen DeGeneres or Brokeback Mountain, it was like a physical blow. Every time they said God had abandoned America because America was supposedly too accepting of the homosexual agenda, all I wanted was to curl up and die. Assuming that theft, lying, and other sins don't happen at lower rates among gay people than straight ones, it logically follows that Christians who think homosexuality is a sin also think gay people as a group are less moral than straight people. So according to that simple logic, the world would be a more moral place on average if all we gay people were dead, or gone, or whatever. But a world without gay people would be ideal. My life was already painful enough at 15. At that point, my life was no fun at all. It wasn't even tolerable. How big a step is it from the world would be more moral and therefore a better place if there were no gay people in it to the world would generally, and I personally, be better off if I were dead? I'm lucky because I got some amazing therapy and found a church that loves me. I've come to realize that God's love is broader than my mind can imagine and that my only purpose here on earth is to love God with all my heart and to love my neighbor as myself. I've dedicated my life to the church. 
I deeply believe in the importance of families, and as cheesy as it might sound, I love Jesus. I'm really not that scary, I don't think. I'm actually probably a little boring. I'm just grateful that God chose to put treasure in earthen vessels, instead of only using people whose journeys have been smooth and easy. May the peace of Christ be with you, and his presence your guide. A gay Christian in North Carolina. Nerd Hurdles, the podcast that encourages you to dork in, nerd on, and geek out. I'm Jacob. And I'm Mandy. We talk about stuff that's too nerdy for people to like. Sometimes we drift off topic. You have to actually be on topic to drift off it. You make a good point. Nerd Hurdles. If I suggest that John Shore has done amazing work, I probably am really suggesting that 30-some-odd letter writers who responded to his call have done amazing work. The first time I read this book, Unfair, I read it for the essays. I was trying to get a grip on John Shore's perspective and how that might play a role in small group meetings within a congregation that had not shut the door of the church to gay people being Christian and gay Christians fully participating. But this most recent time I read it, I realized that the genius of this book is actually in its letters. You cannot deny two things having listened to this podcast. One, there is such a thing as a gay Christian because we have just heard from 17 of them and there are thousands more where they came from. And the second thing is, all of the conversation around the water cooler this weekend, all of the discussions at the dinner table on lunch or dinner after church this Sunday, and perhaps, frighteningly, a number of things said from the pulpit from who knows how many churches, have to answer, have to be accountable for what happens in the lives of the letter writer from North Carolina. For every one of those teenagers, there's another teenager who followed through. And for every teenager that we know engaged in serious self-harm or suicide, the, we knew they were gay when they did it, there is probably a factor of 10 more who we didn't know they were gay. So they're just a suicide stat. Or perhaps mom and dad found that part of the letter and got rid of the letter because mom and dad are less ashamed of the suicide that was caused by the lack of genuine and authentic love in their family and within their church than they were about the fact that their son or daughter was gay. These are life and death questions. And every now and then, I get somebody maybe within my family from the older generation, maybe from within the, church, within the church we used to attend, that we walked the earth to get away from, people who might suggest that this is not the big deal you're making of it, and you speak about this too often, or maybe it's time to pipe down, or maybe we need to remember all the other people and their rights and privileges. Let's remember, this is a matter of life and death. This is actually a matter of ontology. The question facing us is, what is real? And my answer to that question is that what is real are gay Christians, the marginalization of those gay Christians, and the work that Jesus and the Holy Spirit want to do through the hands and feet of those gay Christians, perhaps reaching other people who are facing a struggle that only that set of Christians can fully understand. I'm not saying that this is the biggest deal facing the world today. But I am saying that anyone who suggests it's no big deal is failing to listen 
for the good fruit the Holy Spirit is trying to cultivate in their Christian walk. If you'd like to put some dialogue into this question yourself, I can be reached at icy underscore greg at hotmail.com. I do read and respond to email there. Typically, the show notes that are posted at inappropriateconversations.org have comments enabled as another way to interact. Obviously, Facebook, I've mentioned several times, there's a page for Inappropriate Conversations and a page for Walk the Earth. I also can be interacted with in a more direct way via Twitter. I'm at IC underscore Greg. Through that venue, I speak to both the Inappropriate Conversations and Walk the Earth podcasts. And finally, in addition to direct from the website or via iTunes or via Stitcher, which I've already mentioned, I'm also in the process of posting clips from all of the historic shows of Inappropriate Conversations. And when I get to Walk the Earth, I'll share some there, too, on SoundCloud. I'm IC underscore Greg on SoundCloud as well. And it really is a good way of getting a feel, a clip, a snippet, if you will, of these older shows. I began to value some of the recordings that have been made in the past a little bit more in this past week than maybe I did previously. Somewhere along the way on Friday night, it occurred to me that the fact that I had spoken directly on questions of gay rights at least six times in the past was probably pretty valuable. And then maybe there are some Christians out there, because I'm, I'm speaking harsh and rebuking words, but maybe there's a, another side to the coin. Maybe there's some Christians out there who are for the first time saying, hey, you know what, maybe this isn't a big deal. Maybe this is something that doesn't impact me and I should gracefully let it go. Maybe I should remember that when Jesus said I was to go and make disciples, I was supposed to do it by loving God and loving my neighbor. And if I don't get the loving my neighbor part right, I'm not really reaching anybody, am I? This isn't a game where I can score the most points by getting people to pretend to convert for me. It's got to be genuine. It's got to be authentic. It's got to be reaching people where they are. And I'm not only going to suggest that where some of these people are is homosexual. I'm going to tell you that it's always going to be that way. And then we're not going to change it. And what I mean by that is not any indication that somebody could sort of try to take a pot shot at me for my lack of faith. If it is necessary in the eyes of God, for people to be transformed and not be homosexual anymore. That's not for us to do as humans. That's not for gay Christians to do on their own. That would be a supernatural, transformative work conducted solely and exclusively by the Holy Spirit. But this notion of somebody needing to change their gender or sexuality in order to be fully Christian does not come from the Gospels of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. It comes from the very heretical Gnostic Gospels that those conservative Christians, and I would count myself in their camp here, have been condemning for decades. Why in the world, if you condemn the Gospel of Thomas, for example, for the outrageous claim that Mary of Magdala and Joanna and the other female followers of Christ won't get to heaven until they become magically changed into male because God only has men in heaven... Well, telling people to magically transform themselves into not being homosexual and being heterosexual is every bit the heretical abomination that you find in the pages of these rejected texts like the Gospel of Thomas. For me, I think the journey back to orthodoxy starts with things Jesus said 
in the Sermon on the Mount. If you start with Matthew's Gospel, if you just want to start at Matthew chapters 5, 6, and 7, we could move on from there. Because you're not going to find anywhere in those Gospel passages of Jesus condemning homosexuals. You are going to find in the letters that I just shared, passage after passage after passage of gay Christians professing their love for Jesus, and in some cases, their disillusionment that the church will not let them share in that fellowship. Thanks for listening.